on Martin Luther King Jr. Day this year, I celebrated my 22nd year of sobriety, the anniversary of my 22nd year of sobriety. And it's always a time of incredible gratitude for me because I remember the way it was. And I remember when I got serious about my sobriety and how things changed. Slowly, 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 more slowly than I would have liked. And I found this practice about mm, six months to a year after that initial introduction to spirituality, which really was my sobriety. And one of the things that I used to really like when I was going to a lot of meetings, 12-step meetings, is um, for inspiration, there's this thing called the big book. uh, And they'd read what's called the promises. Um, So let's end with the promises, they would say. And those promises were really meaningful to me because when I first started, I did not feel those were a possibility for me. But now they've all been exceeded for me. So I started thinking about that with respect to this practice. The promises of the practice. What are the promises of the practice? What what are the things that I'm most grateful for? And I decided that they all fell under the umbrella of something you hear people talking a lot about these days, and that's emotional intelligence or emotional literacy. And the shorthand version for that, to me, is discernment, the wisdom of discernment. They all fall under that umbrella of the wisdom of discernment that I am so grateful for. So often, I get questions like, how do I care for myself in the midst of caring for others? How do I care for my own heart while remaining open to the cries of the world? How do I maintain my sanity while remaining active in what often feels like a toxic world? Doesn't all this reek of self-indulgence? Isn't this just a little bit selfish? And the short answer is no, but we'll talk about why. We'll talk about why. Discernment is really about those two wings that we sit between all weekend, you know. The equanimity that comes with awareness and the ability to rest in the sense of vastness that that awareness creates. And compassion, or the quivering of the heart in response to to suffering. And I think these questions about how do I care for myself in the midst of caring for others are so relevant to us as women. I don't think there's a woman among us who has not experienced that pull, that question, because most of us are caregivers in one or another areas of our lives, and caregiving can be exhausting and demanding work. And our comparing minds start making critical judgments about whether we are entitled to feel our own distress when there are so many who appear to have greater challenges than this privileged life that I lead. Thomas Merton said, to allow ourselves to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns 
to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. So ironically, we're often in the business of helping others identify and frame their suffering in some way, but we often view our own needs as problematic and selfish. And without good navigation tools, the effects of, of caregiving, both in our, perf- our personal and our professional lives, eventually take a toll on us, as well as those we provide care or services for. Uh, The cost to ourselves can be irritation, resentment. Or it can be as expensive as the armoring and numbing of the heart. And these are very real occupational hazards for us as women, inside and outside the workplace. In fact, they are such occupational hazards that I'm beginning to believe that organizations should have a duty to train people in how to emotionally take care of themselves, not just in technical competency, but how to emotionally take care of themselves. What are the signs of compassion fatigue? What are the signs of secondary trauma? What are the signs of giving too much? So... Tonight I want to talk about how to use our practice to cultivate some of the tools of equanimity and skillful compassion that will enable us to care for our own hearts as well as the hearts of others without being overwhelmed by that caring. And in many ways, these are the tools that provide us with the discernment to understand our mental states and to cultivate the more nourishing ones and stop feeding the more problematic ones in our individual lives as well as our collective lives. So often when I start to do organizational consulting and I work with organizations on these issues, the first thing I do is have them look at their intake process and how out of control it is and how crazy and frantic they're making people. Would anybody have the opportunity to be present? with this kind of caseload. I see it with lawyers. I see it with social workers. I see it with people who work um, in county social services. I see it in nonprofits. I see it in for-profits. I see it in people who volunteer. I see it all over the place. Um, With all of us trying to be too much for too many and therefore not being able to be present to anybody, including our own families when we come home. And it's really important, I think, to understand how some of the common tendencies of the mind work in this direction. And the Buddha had a name for these. He called them the hindrances, right? And that's because we don't just, it's not that I'm unique because I experience them. It's they represent shared tendencies of the mind that every single one of us experience. I don't know anybody that doesn't experience doubt 
about their practice. I don't know anybody that doesn't experience aversion or wanting something to go away. I don't know anybody that doesn't experience craving in some way, wanting something pleasant to stay and chasing after it. Those are just human tendencies of the mind. And I want to talk about, first I want to talk about how you work with some of these things individually and some of the the warning signs. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying anything original here. I have to say that everybody that I've ever sat a retreat with has influenced me in how I think about these things. Every book I've read on the Dharma, every talk I've heard on the Dharma, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just finding a different way to articulate things that I've heard. So we have these desires, and we have these dimensions of desires. All of us do. And in some ways, desire gets a bad rap in Buddhism, right? You know, um, the way we talk about it. But there are natural desires that are very, very important and easy to satisfy, and there are noble desires. And... Those noble desires are the ones that are calling for our attention when we're feeling disappointed with how our life is. When we're, fe- we're feeling that something's amiss. You know, think of Siddhartha. Siddhartha was a very disappointed young man, right? And he spent years, in, first of all, trying to uh, chase down the answers by overindulgence in in the sense realms, sensual pleasures, and then he went to the opposite end of the continuum, the aesthetic end, or the ascetic end, uh, where he denied himself food and drink and anything that the body might need. So he tried both these continuums, and then apparently when he was enlightened, found the middle way, right? That the body does, you have to eat and drink, and but these things, when you pursue them to excess, they, they create problems. So what I've been telling people in my groups is this disappointment that we feel, that our true selves are calling out for, this true self that Tara so beautifully talked about last night. When it's calling out to us, that's disappointment. And when that disappointment is married to some kind of insight and action, it becomes a spiritual calling. And that is the noblest of all desires. And so, you know, the, not all these desires are problematic. And, you know, we have natural desires, too. I mean, it, it's cold out. It was raining out. You know, we don't, we don't have a lot of angst about putting on something warm or protecting ourselves from the rain. We don't sit there and do any kind of negotiation process with it, right? I mean, it, it's so some of these, these desires are just very, very natural. But here's what distinguishes the natural and noble desires from the ones that lead us down a different road. The natural and noble desires can be answered without leaving the kind of residue in the mind that comes from trying to satisfy problematic desires or craving that just can't be satisfied. They pass without the residue of regret 
or not feeling good about ourselves and then looking for a temporary way to soothe ourselves from not feeling good about ourselves and to uh, protect and defend our heart about not feeling good about ourselves. So natural desires like eating and drinking only leave problematic residue if done in excess. And we all have experienced that. We don't experience any angst about, you know, feeding ourselves or uh, hydrating ourselves. But when we start to go into excess, excess around those sensual pleasures, that's when we begin to feel some angst. So when we do things like follow the precepts, when we set up our lives to support moving toward our deepest spiritual longings, we might experience the discomfort of change. We all experience the discomfort of change when we let go of the familiar. That's part of the process is discomfort. That old me, that volume of me is going to get louder and louder in those instances. But we don't experience the residue of regret about a life lived in a manner that is not in alignment with the deepest aspirations of this true self that we all have access to. I just um, read some, my partner just started working for hospice, so she's been reading all of these books about working with the dying. And um, she shared something very interesting with me, which was the five top regrets of the dying. In this order, number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Number five, I wish I had chosen to be happy. And that last one I want to spend uh, a little bit of time with as we go along. But So in contrast to these, though, here's the ethical residue of regret, right? Of, of not living in alignment with one's deepest longings, with one's spiritual callings. So the foundation of desires that are born of craving the pleasant or trying to push the unpleasant away, they can always be seen because they're always built on a sense or lack of insufficiency or lack. Something's missing. They're always built on that. And the interesting thing is they can't be satisfied in the same way that noble desires can because our attempts to feed them only makes them stronger. It not only makes them stronger, but it leaves residue behind in our attempts to satisfy them. So believing that we're not enough in any given moment, we start prowling the external world of sense pleasures to answer that lack. And there's nothing wrong with nurturing our capacity to be delighted. That's really important to understand. This texture that we keep talking about, paying attention to the texture of emotional experience, paying attention to the texture of whether you're opening, paying attention to the texture of whether you're closing, paying attention to the texture of 
pleasant, to the texture of unpleasant, to the texture of neutral. Everything is some gradation of that. Always some gradation of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Now, the practice isn't anti-pleasant, right? I mean, we consider mindfulness to be something that allows us to nurture our capacity to be delighted with a beautiful sunset, to take a cool swim on a hot day, or to taste the sweetness of an orange. All of these things are considered parts of mindfulness and learning how to pay attention in a different way. So there's so much in ourselves and the world that is delightful and can be tasted and appreciated in the present moment. So many ways to cultivate and water the seeds of joy. It's only a problem if we tie our freedom to getting more of something or less of something. And when we do this, we lean into that world of the kind of craving that comes from attaching to the pleasant or the kind of aversion that comes from pushing away the unpleasant. And we often pursue excess with more and more intoxication, with alcohol, with food, with things, with relationships, with sex, with work, with TV, with the Internet, or whatever form of entertainment we reach for to cut that edge, to cut the edge of that existential angst that is trying to get our attention and call us to do something very, very, very important. And this is when what we learn with practice is these pleasant experiences arise, they endure, they fade away. The unpleasant experiences arise, endure, and they fade away. But here's the thing about pleasant that we have to learn. If we don't know when we are happy and content, we will always be unhappy and discontent. You have to know what pleasant is to cultivate it and cultivate the conditions that create it. So my teacher Ty says, it's important to appreciate the happiness of not having a toothache at times other than when we have a toothache. And that's such a metaphor for so much of our life experience. I had a really important run-in with that one this summer. I was in a a terrible bicycle accident. A car ran a stop sign. I was on a bike path, and I didn't see him. Usually I'm very careful about looking. And um, he was coming up over a hill, and so I didn't see how fast he was going. I couldn't see him until the last minute. I'd started across the road. I swerved to miss him. I actually felt the fender hit me, but I hit this curb, flew over the handlebars, and landed right on my head. Thank God I had a new helmet on, um, which I had just replaced, but I had a very bad concussion. And I'm telling you, I was, they, they told me this would happen, but I was so grouchy and irritable that it was, uh, I was miserable, and I realized that's how life used to be for me. That is how life used to be for me. So I really, it gave me an opportunity to appreciate not having a toothache most of the time and what pleasant feels like, how much more equanimity and spaciousness there is in my life. So it's very important to identify when pleasant is happening. 
Now, most of us intuitively understand the experience that comes from craving for sensual pleasure in the various forms it shows up. But, uh, you know, a teacher that I recently sat with talked about two different forms and hidden kinds of cravings that we might not recognize and that are also supported culturally. Now, she didn't call the first one what I'm calling it, but she, the, Christina Feldman is the person that got me thinking about this. So the first form that is a little bit hidden to us is attaching to what I'm going to call the craving to become, which gets um, played out. Instead of prowling in the world of sense experiences, we're prowling the world for a sense of something to make us enough. Something to make us enough. And we tend to first look for it in the world of status and achievement. And that's what leads to this false equation between worth and activity that this culture reinforces over and over and over. And it leads to exhaustion because we can never do enough even though we find ourselves running faster and faster. So the question that I end up asking a lot of people is, what would make you enough? Can you answer that? What would make you enough? And as women, uh, we also tend to look for a sense of something to make us enough in the world of relationships. And sometimes in how indispensable that we can make ourselves uh, to, to others. And what happens in silence is that these roles and identities that reassure, reassure us of our worth and all the activity that we falsely rely on to provide meaning in our life become more transparent. And we begin to question what we are apart from all the credentials we have achieved and other things we have accumulated and achieved. And there are books written and seminars given to fulfill our incessant demand for the craving to become. Just walk into your local bookstore or library and you'll find the self-improvement section. There it is. You're going to find that is there to fulfill this incessant demand or craving to become. Everybody's trying to sell us a bill of goods for what will help us be enough. However, this kind of project mentality can never satisfy our spiritual, our noble spiritual longings because this kind of project mentality is inherently dependent on outcome and lack and it's a major impediment to spiritual practice. So there's nothing wrong with these skillful longings for respect, for creativity, for dignity, for the opportunity to be seen, for the opportunity to express our unique gifts. Those are all noble longings. Where we get into trouble is when these longings rest solely on the craving to become worthy and acceptable to others. And the root of these longings is once again the foundation of insufficiency. Lack. Driven by the belief that we are not enough. And this is a a kind of toxic craving because it's built on an ongoing abandonment of 
the acceptance and compassion and sufficiency of our own hearts. An abandonment of the belief that we deserve to follow our noble longings. And there are a lot of ways that this plays out. We seek perfection. We start to mold ourselves to the expectations of others. We shut down. We need to please and reject. We need to protect ourselves. And praise and approval will always feel pleasant. And blame and rejection will always feel unpleasant. And there's nothing problematic about giving or receiving sincere praise. However, if we're going to seek and get greedy about praise and approval, we're also going to hoard and be devastated by judgment, by blame, and by the disapproval and rejection of others. And we probably are not the actual objects of that. So the price of the craving to become is the authenticity, is our very authenticity. Because we're at the mercy of the need for perfection and the approval of others. And pleasing others to get what we lack is a more subtle form of selfing that we are particularly conditioned to as women. And as we get locked into selfing, we get locked into that closed world of me, you, us, them. We resent people for not being what we need, and we resent ourselves for looking to them to be what we need. And then the louder, as I said this morning, the louder the volume of me gets, the more unhappy I usually am. So, and it's not that you can just magically let go in those situations. It's not that you can just tune out. Something's being called for that's important. There's a piece of that that's very, very important to listen to. But we do notice that in those moments of calm and peace and inner steadiness or in moments of generosity and kindness that the volume of me gets quieter. And that's what happens when we wake up. We become less important. We have more of a desire to be ordinary rather than someone special. And we learn how to be content without having to leave traces of ourselves everywhere. And awakening doesn't make us holy. It doesn't make us perfect. These are the goals of the unawakened, confined within the boundaries of the self-improvement, confined within the boundaries of a separate self. The Zen teacher Charlene Joko back when asked, are you enlightened, replied, I hope never to have such a thought. Another teacher, when asked what enlightenment was like, replied, it was the last disappointment of my life. (laughs) So that's the first kind of hidden form, the craving to become enough. Just can't, we just can't seem to fill it up. And aversion is, or the pushing away is the home of the more, the second and more subtle kind of craving which is the craving for the non-existence of things, the craving to be rid of experiences that have that unpleasant texture that we dislike. Remember the first night I said, I don't want to be the person that's having that experience of being depressed. I don't want to have the person who's having that experience of being anxious. I don't want to struggle with these feelings of unworthiness. I don't want to be the person who can't wait for the bell to ring. 
know? This kind of, of craving for non-existence shows up in lots of different ways. Um, in a moderate way, it shows up for all of us as the fear of discomfort um, or the fear of being overwhelmed that leads to a sense of restlessness and agitation. Or it may show up in the desire to become invisible as a kind of protection. We just make ourselves go away. And at its intermediate level, it can show up in the fear of being annihilated. I'm losing myself here. It's just too much. And most of us have have felt that. And again, that can either be a spiritual calling or if we're going to feed it in a problematic way, it will lead us down the road of protecting, defending, and numbing our hearts. And at its most extreme, this craving for non-existence is suicide. So how do we deal with the various forms of craving in our practice? We certainly don't reject or, or judge them. We know that what we resist just gets stronger. And to try to resist them or try to want something that's not there or something to go away is just another form of craving. So it's not so much that we let go of craving. We can't just let go of all the causes and conditions that represent us. But we learn how not to follow its call. We learn how not to feed it. So as we understand the law of impermanence and we begin to develop some intuitive understanding of the suffering, the clinging to impermanence causes, the suffering, the clinging to pleasure that will arise, endure, and fade away, or the suffering that comes from trying to make things other than what they are, non-existent, you know, If we learn how to deal with those things in a way where we don't follow their call, that's discernment. That's the gift of this practice. And it's it's really important because that's the beginning of cultivating equanimity. And with discernment, we also play around with this state called the neutral. Because as eager as we are to shed the pain and alienation of conflict. We discover the addiction to intensity and drama and excitement, especially in neutral times when experiences are not noticeably pleasant or unpleasant. And sometimes in an unskillful attempt to fill the desire for vitality of feeling, we may develop this kind of subtle inner ambivalence in our relationship to inner peace. So we need to pay attention to neutral also. And what we do in the practice is we develop the skill of surfing rather than getting caught in these various gradations of neutral, pleasant, and unpleasant. And as we develop that skill of surfing, we get glimpses of peace and contentment and inner sufficiency. And by surfing, I don't mean that we just glaze over it. We become intimate with the nature of things, but we don't get caught by them in the same way. We develop this faith that it's not permanent. 
And we develop this understanding that trying to cling to something that's not permanent is like watching, you know, the gerbil that goes around in the cage. It's just absolutely impossible. And so we get these little glimpses when we return, when we're able to stop the uh, feeding, the obsessing, and the perseverating, and we just return to the breath. That is a moment of enlightened activity. And folks, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There's only enlightened activity. And the enlightened beings among us also embrace their humanity. They don't transcend or overcome it. You know, a tree is pretty good at being a tree. We have to let ourselves be pretty good at being a human being. Which means really being able to negotiate this desire for perfection and the fact that we will never become perfect. That's just part of the human experience. And when I look back at the early years of my practice, I spot the greed of spiritual materialism and my desire you know, for these states of bliss and mystical experiences. And that's why I told you the first night that I, or the first morning that I'm a little skeptical of people that want to tell me about their transcendent or mystical experiences. I'm much more interested in the transformation of just one negative emotion than any mystical experience. So genuine peace is discovered in the midst of agitation. It emerges from those waves of restlessness and disappointment that we attend to. And true compassion emerges in this turmoil of pain. And fearlessness is discovered by turning toward the difficult fears and anxieties that shadow us. And it's only when we understand the painfulness of craving itself that we find the willingness to step out of its discontent. I can tell you the moment I made the decision to get sober. I was at a funeral of somebody that I really loved and respected, and I wasn't feeling anything. I knew what I was supposed to be feeling. I was thinking more about how I was going to work in that drink, where I was going to get it, and I realized, oh, my God. I'm only experience my feelings through what I think I should be, how I think I should be looking to other people. That's numb. That was when I said enough. And that's when I got really, really serious about not feeding certain things anymore. So every moment that we're pursuing craving, we're abandoning our heart's commitment and capacity for this contentment and sufficiency that is already right there for us to draw on. And with, with recognition, we learn how not to feed the craving. So many of our emotional and mental states rely on being fed. So if you practice restlessness, you get more restless. Agitation grows. If you practice being angry, anger grows. If you practice obsessing and perseverating, you get better at it. You know? So the Buddha knew this early on. Whatever you frequently dwell on, that's where the mind is going to go. So when I was a little girl, I loved cowboys. And I used to like look at cowboy sayings. Here's my favorite. Then and now. If you're riding a dead horse, dismount. 
so simple, right? It's so hard. So once we realize how we feed these mental states, we can avoid throwing fuel on the fire. We can dismount. We can replace the horse. Some of us need to replace a whole herd. That was the case for me. But, you know, you can cultivate different things. Though you can notice what brings equanimity. You can notice what brings contentment. So if you practice calm and steadiness, you get better at it. So the, my invitation, we were talking uh, in one of my groups about investigative questions, is throughout the day, any day, ask yourself, what am I feeding at this moment? Don't judge it, just notice it. And the stories that Tara was talking about last night will become more and more and more available to you. So you can also do this by paying attention to what kinds of environments will cultivate skillful states of mind. And a simple test to ask yourself is what seeds are being watered by the people around me in this moment? Are the seeds of kindness and understanding and loving being watered or are the seeds of anger, irritation, and frustration being watered? Now, if everywhere you go, there you are, and those seeds are being watered everywhere, that's something to pay attention to too. Right? Because if the issues stay the same and the faces change, there, there's a message there. <laughs> so equanimity isn't the absence of the challenging and disturbing. It's not freedom from delusion as much as it is a negotiation of delusion. We don't just get there. It develops gradually and it takes intentionality, which is why there's so much emphasis on our intention. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. We learn to live in a way where we don't have battles to win with ourselves. Remember I talked about metta as a, as, as a uh, practice of befriending, of standing next to. When we are in a very nurturing relationship, we befriend, we stand next to not just our pain, but we get on the same side with them and taking care of theirs. And they get on the same side with us. There's not a battle anymore. And so slowly over time our way of living and relating and speaking begins to change. And that kind of discernment is what leads to the life skill of letting go. We don't practice with this greed mind that wants to get and accumulate a mind that wants an outcome. We practice with a letting go mind. A mind of relinquishment. Willing to open. Willing to learn. Willing to make space for. All of our experiences and willing to soften into any resistance and aversion that's present. Not bully it into going away. That'll never work. And we learn experientially how to let go each time we give ourselves permission to begin anew. Each time we've gotten off the course of the mindfulness trainings. We look again for the Northern Star. We put ourselves back on course each time. We find ourselves lost. We gently bring ourselves back to the breath. So we can bring this skill to changing circumstances and events in our life. Life is going to continually ask us to let go and to find some stillness and equanimity within our own hearts. It's not personal loss, tragedy. It's not personal. It's something that happens to all of us. 
And I'm beginning to think the best description of awakening is, can be described as the absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Now think of weather. The world is going to continue to come to us on its own terms. And spiritual practice is larger than whether or not the world cares about me. It's larger than this small, sentimental attachment to the self that we want to keep centralizing into. We all experience different forms of loss and tragedy throughout our lives. And that's why the question, why is this happening to me, is such an unskillful question. It goes nowhere. Many of us think we have to change the world, and we often fall into a deep despair because we don't recognize that the world, with all its sorrow, with all its joy, with all of its vast intelligence, is here to change us. And our disappointment always contains a powerful message. It's calling for us to look and notice where we put our longing and that we've probably put them somewhere where they don't belong, and a correction of the course is required. Joko Beck developed an alternative version of the Four Noble Truths that expresses all of this quite succinctly. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. So like it or not, this is it. For some of us, that's good news right now. For some of us, that's bad news right now. Whichever side of the the coin you happen to fall on, this too shall change. But everything we meet and encounter is our life. And everything we meet and encounter is our practice. You know, in the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness, we talk about Mindfulness of the body in the body, mindfulness of feelings in the feelings, mindfulness of mind in the mind, and mindfulness of objects of mind. And they talk about objects of mind as dharmas in many of the texts. I love that. You know, we think of dharma as a teaching. Well, that means everything is a teaching. We're developing this compassionate state of mind that emphasizes acceptance, openness, rather than guilt and blame and shame about one's behavior. So where does working for change individually and collectively fit in with this kind of, of acceptance? If we just accept everything, how does anything ever change? And if we're accepting, does it mean we lose our motivation to work for social change and social justice? What's the relationship between acceptance and skillful action? So many people make the mistake of equating acceptance and equanimity with not caring. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking if we develop a sense of equanimity, we'll lose the ability to care about the world around us because a lot of us are addicted to the energy of our anger. It, there is some energy there that is really, really important, but the energy of anger is, I think the, it was the Buddha who said it's like a, a forest fire. It burns itself out. You never know. It's like a tornado. You never know where it's going to hit and what kind of damage that it's going to bring. So, you know, can we get so calm that it won't matter? That kind of 
acceptance that we're talking about, the kind that you're all drawn to, the kind that comes from that spiritual longing that arises from that existential angst, isn't a passive stance that allows ourselves or others to be exploited or to let people or circumstances walk all over us. I addressed that in the meta practice this afternoon with some special phrases for that. The acceptance is of what is already here in the, in the present moment. So unless I'm a tra- time traveler, I can't go back to what has happened, no matter how much I brood and ruminate about it. So my ruminations about when it comes to the suffering of a loved one, be it a child, a parent, a partner, a co-worker, you know, when we think we've done something unskillful and then we take that second arrow out and go, boom, I'm a bad parent. Boo, I'm a bad mother. Boom, you know, I'm a bad child. Boom, you know, I don't care. So, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should have stayed home instead of working. Maybe it's about this. Maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because of this. The truth is, is it doesn't matter. It makes no difference in this moment with my ability to cultivate a different kind of relationship with this person. It just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's a, it's a place where the ego is so still front and center, calling for our attention in uh, the ways that the Buddha described as Mara. So that's the first thing to realize is that you know whatever you cultivate in this moment you're making stronger whatever it is and you're you can't go back and undo that and from the point of this practice if it isn't this moment it's ancient history and it should be treated as such so last year I spoke some about the challenging questions and dilemmas that we face as engaged practitioners How do we free ourselves from the adaptations that we've made to our conditioning? How do we cut through our sense of privilege in some arenas and our inferior status in other arenas of our lives? How do we not concretize our enemies while taking action to end exploitation and injustice? How do we develop the discerning wisdom to know when fierce compassion rather than gentle compassion is called for? The first skillful tool I think, of fierce compassion has to do with how we witness the many acts of violence and exploitation that take place in front of us all the time in any given week of our lives, whether it's one child bullying another, whether it's observing that you went through the the checkout line and were never asked for identification with your check or credit card, And the person of color behind you was asked, or the person of color ahead of you was asked. With the right intention and skillful means, it's possible to take action in relation to an unskillful behavior for the purpose of transforming rather than exacerbating the violence. And it's so important to understand that that is possible. That's the very principle that restorative justice is built on which always has to begin with ourselves. What was the harm? Who was harmed? Not just this victim, but all the web of interconnections between this victim and their community. And how can the harm be repaired? So 
We can bring skillful attention and action to the awareness that one person was hurtful to another rather than letting it roll off of us because of how frequently we observe it. And the second tool of skillful compassion is to negotiate our family and cultural conditioning so that we can wear our identity, so that we have the privilege of wearing our identities a little bit more loosely. We have lots of strong identities. We're Jewish, we're people of color, we're members of the LGBTQ communities, we're mothers, we're cops, we're lawyers, we're social workers, we're type A personalities, we're addicts, we're recovering addicts. You know, it's so important to understand that a lot of our fear is so understandable. It comes from our cultural conditioning. For some of us, the ability to be the, being tuned in to that hypervigilance for all of us in this room, our safety has literally been dependent on that at times. If you're a person of color, if you're a gay or bisexual person, if you're a woman, you know what it's like to be paying attention, to where skillful contracting is necessary. And the problem with that is that, you know, these, an these ancestors that came before us, these pioneers, these people we owe so much to when we're members of minority cultures, you know, they've passed on those messages to us in very powerful ways. I, uh, a good friend that I sometimes teach with is a Jewish man, six foot four, big guy, never been harmed by anybody in his life, went into his first uh, medi uh, meditation retreat and was terrified, was absolutely convinced people with machine guns were going to come in that room and start gunning everybody down. And, you know, his family, they're survivors of the Holocaust. So these things run very, very deep in us. You know, I was talking to La uh, one day about this experience of hers in um, this, uh, this work she's done in this, this area of respectful, I think it's respectful confrontation. Um, and she was talking about this exercise that was so powerful for her because it was kind of a, a combination of a martial arts sort of thing where she had to own saying no. So somebody asks you to say no and mean it. It's not no, no, no. Pretty soon it's no, no, no. And she said she had this feeling of saying no for the generations of ancestors before her who couldn't say no. And that's real, real powerful stuff. So we can own the gifts of these identities while learning to wear them more loosely as we look at how they have affected some of our adaptations. And we can begin to just slightly take baby steps in whether or not we might be a little safer in some of those areas and test the waters a little bit. And then we begin to wear life as well as our identities more as a loose-fitting cloak, and it becomes very interesting then. And you know, we can still rely 
on that higher self to tell us when it's necessary to be contracted. I take solo motorcycle trips. I'm alone for four to five weeks sometimes, camping on my own. And I pay real close attention to when something isn't feeling right. I don't say I'm a bad person for doing that. I pay attention to it. And, and that's part of discerning wisdom, I think. But I also pay attention to the fact that my perceptions of this situation may not be accurate. But this might not be a situation where I'm going to choose to test the waters. Okay? So, but I'm always aware that my filters are coming from my conditioning in some way. And mine are different from yours. Not better, worse, just different. And we also need to recognize the hindrance of, of doubt that we all experience with respect to our practice. We have to negotiate that one very, very carefully and skillfully. So, you know, isn't this practice a little bit self-indulgent? You know, I had somebody say, wouldn't my money be spent better, you know, out there giving it to the homeless rather than coming on retreat? Well, what could possibly be more important than learning to care for ourselves and our world in the deepest way possible? If we can't welcome and embrace our own inner turbulence and learn how to do that, how can we ever do the same with the external turbulence that we encounter in families, in relationships, in clients, in patients, in communities, in our world? The lessons that we learn in the territory of our own hearts, these aren't merely narcissistic intellectual bubbles. They're life lessons that apply to all of us. And so much of the conflict and pain in our world is unnecessary and born of fear, alienation, and the territorial mind. And relationship conflicts of any kind, they're going to re-evoke and snag us in some constricting identity from the museum of our past, including all the, sh all the ancestors we're standing on the shoulders of from some museum of our past associated with psychic pain. And the conflict can't go anywhere as long as we continue playing it out with other people instead of addressing its source, that sense of lack, the seeds of the negative view of ourselves that have been activated and that are undermining our basic sense of existence, validity, or worth. There's a reason those things are there. Totally understandable while they're there. They're not our fault. But again, they are our responsibility. So to change the, the world or to love everybody is just too big an ambition. It's too big an ambition for any single person. But to respond in this moment with engagement and compassion is possible for each and every one of us. Our energy, our mood, our sense of connection or disconnection connection has such an incredible effect on how we interact with others. One of the most powerful experiences I ever had as a cop was coming off retreat. I had very, very strong feelings about domestic violence and arresting perpetrators of domestic violence, including people who intimidated others with the threat of violence. And I went to this call, and I just had this a little bit more of a sense of vastness. And the call was a domestic violence complaint, and there wasn't anybody available for backup. 
And so it was a very unusual situation in me finding myself there by myself. I met the woman. The woman was, was crying. She was in a car. It was a situation where there was a separation, and the child had been spending the weekend with her father. It was time to go home with mom, and dad wouldn't let the child go. Now, ordinarily, not going to happen on my watch, right? But uh, something just a little bit different. I was in a little bit different of a space as a result of being on this retreat. I knocked on the door, and I said, can I just come in and talk to you? And my voice was pretty much like this. And I looked at the little girl, and I said, I know you love that little girl. And I know, like me, you can see she's afraid. How about if we just let her go and uh, you and I just sit and talk? And he did. He let her go. And I did everything by the book wrong. (laughs) Everything by the book wrong. I had this, you know, I'm like 5'3". I know I have a bigger presence than that, but I'm I'm small. And um, this guy was like 6'4", and I'm not exaggerating. And um, so, you know, I've got this gun belt and this bulletproof vest, which I think is symbolic armament as well as as a physical need and uh, within 10 minutes this guy was crying in my arms there was absolutely no need for an arrest or punishment of any kind and I saw him three days later walking down the street that I lived on and all of a sudden, this person comes up behind me, grabs me in the air, and he says, you, you, you saved my life that night. Thank you. I was just in a different space. A little more spaciousness. A little more vastness. So we can respond to this moment with engagement and compassion if we learn how to take care of ourselves in every moment. So often when challenging things happen, just a handful of people can make so much of a difference. For example, Ty talks about the boat people that left Vietnam in rickety boats during the war. And when people hadn't had food or water for days and were facing the threat of pirates every single day, those who could remain calm made the difference between life and death for everybody. So you can be the person who makes a difference in a contentious interaction, in a meeting at work. You can be the person who holds the container by bringing a steady and calm presence to it. You can be the person who, rather than exacerbating pain and exploitation, transforms it by the way you bear witness to it. You can be the person who, instead of telling others how it should be, brings... You bring unconscious and unskillful ways of being into the conscious arena of dialogue. You can be the person who doesn't attempt to recruit others to your viewpoint behind closed doors. And most important of all is you can have the courage to be the person who asks, how am I engaging in the very behavior I am complaining about? That's how we change the ethical climates of our organizations and communities. It's so important to be aware of how we marginalize our associational life, how we marginalize our interconnection with each other, how we forget just how much of a difference any one of us can make, 
how compassion gets completely eliminated in the public conversation. And we're about to get a real heavy dose of it as we move into the election year. No. Culturally, we're encouraged to develop this really strong sense of identity and in individuality. And we not only reinforce self-interest and isolation from each other, but each family, each sector, each agency, each community is focused on its own self-interest. And in an individualistic country, the fabric of community doesn't get built. So even for those of us who understand this, the choices are difficult. The choices to support that fabric of community are difficult. For, for example, here's a simple one that's not so simple. Most of us understand and even decry that the cost of some of us having more is that some of us have less. But when push comes to shove and it comes to giving up a competitive advantage for our children, for our grandchildren, by getting them into the best possible schools and getting them the best possible education, most of us make the decision to flee to better neighborhoods and better schools. And for every city and school that prospers for middle-class flight, there's another one left behind, paying the price for that prosperity. I don't have... These are not dilemmas that can be answered easily. I'm certainly not telling anybody that they shouldn't put their child in a good school and want the best for them. But if our strength isn't born from our connection to each other, it easily descends into aggression and control and striving and rigidity. And that's when compassion gets eliminated because it's seen as a sign of weakness that others will sniff out and take advantage of and use to discredit us. And in our associational life, we often, especially in the organizations and communities we're part of, we often think of ourselves as the effect and others as the cause of what's wrong. And we seem to believe that something or someone is the problem and someone else needs to do something different. You know, I always get called into organizations to fix people. You know, literally. And, you know, in authentic community membership, we start holding ourselves accountable for the well-being of the larger community. It's not just the boss's job. It's not the supervisor's job. It's not the teacher's job. It's not the director's job. Because if I don't get to be who I want to be without the possibility of everybody getting to be who they want to be, and I've come to believe that the real task of leadership is to confront people with their own freedom. And people don't like that. So skillful compassion isn't about providing answers. It's about encouraging people to step into themselves, to step into their own responsibility, their own freedom, their own knowing. And community transformation hinges on how we engage with each other. So rather than judging any particular gathering, including those boring work meetings, maybe we can shift the belief that this world, this organization, this meeting, this gathering is ours to construct together. And recognizing one's part in creating the present situation is the critical act of courage and engagement. So when, when strength is born of the courage, not just the courage to be vulnerable, but the courage and the ability to be steady, the skill to be steady in the midst of that vulnerability, then trust and openness as well as inner confidence and integrity just naturally follow. 
And that's the kind of strength that skillful compassion is built on. And so we need to develop the awareness that informs our intentions. There aren't easy answers. Somebody called me up the other day for the second time and asked if I would teach mindfulness to Air Force pilots or be a part of that. And I had to watch all these cascading emotions. But, you know, I said, you know, I need to think about it and get back to you. Because I'm not interested in teaching a concentration practice without an ethical base. If I teach Air Force pilots mindfulness, I'm not interested in them being better at dropping bombs. However, you know, I will never, ever forget the police officer sharing that that happened at the retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. And there were a lot of us that, at the community's request, stood up and told their stories. And some of those stories involved exposure to very graphic violence. It was a real exercise in dealing with praise and blame because I got a lot of praise from people who loved that session, and I got some notes. How dare you expose us to this kind of violence? And I felt so slapped because I was like, you're missing the point. Part of my love for you, my service to you, to you, is I do this work so you don't have to. Somebody has to do it. Many of us do that kind of work. So am I really prepared to say that a military is totally unnecessary? Sometimes violence is action and sometimes it's not action. Am I really prepared to help? be a part of perpetuating conditions that might bring apart another holocaust. I have two sons in their 20s. Somebody's serving so they aren't. So these are complex issues. I don't have the answer yet about whether or not I should teach mindfulness to Air Force pilots. I don't know yet. Those are the kinds of questions that we live our way into. One day we wake up and, you know, the answer is there. We don't even know how it got there. We just Simply continue to do our best and head in the direction of understanding and compassion. A tree should be a tree. A human being should be a human being. Our best is good enough. An action that is 50% nonviolent in nature is better than one that's 20% nonviolent in nature. And as we correct the course, maybe we get to 80% and 20%. But if we work for peace out of anger, we will never, ever succeed. I wanted to talk a little bit about form, but we're running out of time. So, you know, let me just say one thing about form. It's not always a horrible thing. It doesn't always have to be a rule that we rebel against. It can be a container that that allows us to rest and relax in it. You know, we don't, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that rebellion is freedom, the point is just to let go of method is absolute. You know, any practice that we commit to is good. It's not about is this the best practice or not. You know, there's not a particular practice that will provide us with safety. We find safety along the way of a path that we commit to. Before awakening, there's a sense of self. After awakening, there's a sense of self. Before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. 
The difference is just the view. We begin to understand that non-duality, paradox, and mystery are part of this wonderful thing of being willing to let go of the fear of the unknown. So we can move through our days without getting caught in solidity. It's been said that paradox is how ultimate reality looks to the dualistic mind. So violence can be action. It can be non-action. This practice takes effort, and at the same time, it's about non-effort. If I take one lit candle and light two more, is there one flame or three? What am I doing right now? Am I extending or receiving? Can it be both at the same time? Does it have to be one or the other? That's what beginning to rest in this ultimate reality of non-duality is like, is that kind of understanding. And once we understand that liberation and understanding come from this body, this world, then we don't have to make distinctions between pure and impure. Beautiful flowers come from the compost of garbage. Your enlightenment comes from the crap in your life. (laughs) True mind is discovered only in deluded mind. And we begin to catch glimpses of what it would be like to rest in that awareness that Tara was talking about what it would be like to be liberated from these notions and categories of being and non-being. So in conclusion, let me just say that this practice is an ongoing, gradual transformation. And it requires our sincere and wholehearted devotion. Half-hearted, once-in-a-while efforts won't change the hardwired habitual patterns in our lives. And an intention or commitment isn't something we make once. Discipline is remembering what we want. It's a renewal that we make over and over and over. We continually rededicate ourselves to being present and sensitive and refining our view by just being open to learning from however things are throughout the day. Just trying to be impeccably tuned in to those emotional textures of opening and closing. It's a tremendous blessing to know that there is a choice about what we feed, that there is that possibility of remembering what we most deeply value and treasure, and then to translate that sense of possibility into an embodied way of being moment to moment. That is the promise and grace of the practice. So just an announcement while we have everybody here is that um, tomorrow morning at the 6.30 sit, we want everyone to be here for that sit. It's the last formal sit of the retreat, and we'll be doing uh, closing announcements at the end of the sit. So if everyone would please be at the 6.30 sit tomorrow morning. The um, Sunday schedules have been posted, and so it'll give you an idea um, of how tomorrow is going to unfold. So I just wanted to let you know to please come to the 6.30 sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.